if you were free to do whatever you wanted for the rest of your life, you'd probably have a great life. But would you get to experience the ceremony around having to come to terms what it means to be a father or a mother? Choose your own adventure. And I think it's a pretty fucking excellent adventure you're about to go on. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. This podcast in particular today is one that I've been looking forward to so much in recent weeks and actually in recent months since we set it up. And that's because it's with Dr. Nathan Riley, the holistic OBGYN. And if you've been listening to the PATH podcast in in these last few months, you'll know that both Lauren and I are expecting a little beautiful baby boy soon. And so the conversations that I'm having with the men in my life, uh, to the females in my life, to the books I'm reading, to the podcasts I'm listening to, a lot of it has to do with stepping into fatherhood. And so today is a real treat because I've had the pleasure to spend the entire day with Dr. Nathan. We got to hang out, eat food, chop it up, and we are actually going tomorrow for a four-day experience with a group of rad-ass men on a sacred hunting trip. And so we're going to get to drop in even more of the next few days. But on this podcast, you're going to learn so much about the interventions that classically happen in hospitals and how that differs from, for example, a home birth or birth in a birthing center. Uh, You're going to learn as the birthing process, as a rite of passage, what's the role of the father. And one of the things I appreciated today so much about our conversation is even though Dr. Nathan has delivered hundreds of babies, there's still some things that surprised him about when his two young kids were born. And so you're going to get to hear about that. I learned so much. Nathan is someone, as you'll find out, that is wicked smart and also incredibly heart-centered and courageous in the work that he's doing in the world. So get ready for a fire podcast with Dr. Nathan Riley, the holistic OBGYN. One of the things that we were talking about right before we had hopped on is um, at least what I feel like hearing your story and then having my own story when I first went hunting and the first trip, uh, I didn't get an animal and it was really frustrating because I had it right in my sights. And because of my colorblindness, or at least the story I told myself about that, I couldn't quite distinguish between the animal and the landscape. But really what was going through my mind and my heart in that moment was I was going through a lot of stuff life-wise. Yeah. And it just wasn't a whole full body soul. Yes. Right. And that for me is, is the greatest teacher. And so when I reflect back, I don't look at that hunt as being unsuccessful. I think at surface level, it might say, oh, you didn't get an animal. It's unsuccessful. One, I was a part of it. I got to witness yeah. other people uh, taking an animal. I got to be a part of that. We got to do it with our brothers. And there was medicine in that for me. If it's not a full body, yes, especially when it comes to taking a life we need to reevaluate things and really need to, for me at least, check in with where is the wisdom that we're acting out of? Where is that coming from? Right. And so whatever happens for you, I think it's going to be perfect however it shows up. Mm. And there's medicine in that too. You're right. You're right. And one thing that that is surfacing for me is that it's it's the same as like taking a drug or a psychedelic or 
doing anything. Mm. If it's not like a hell yes, then it's a fuck no. Mm. But we don't really listen to that intuition often, do we? You know, um, it could be a matter of like, you know, we could use kinesiology, we can use muscle testing principles, right? And we could say, hey, is this is this cake okay for me? Or biogeometry principles. You don't really ask the question, but you get this sort of answer from the universe that like, oh, this is adding to you or taking away from you. And and uh, we're not used to listening to that, but there is some reason why maybe this, at this moment, you know, under these circumstances, that pulling the trigger is not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's still possible. I think we give ourselves too much credit as being like tough enough or smart enough to know when the right time is. But sometimes that gut feeling, that solar plexus, you know, I think that's really maybe where the where the answer lies. And this exercise for me is actually getting all the distraction away and listening to that gut feeling. And maybe when I'm out there, Mike, maybe I'm going to be like shooting deer left and right, like <laughs> Terminator style out there. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works with Monsal, but, <laughs> but maybe, I mean, uh, maybe it'll just be like, I can't, I, you know, the first 10 feet out there, it's just presented and I'm yeah. like out of the way we're doing this. And it, it could be, I don't know. But that's why it's fun. Like we don't have ritual anymore. We don't have ceremony. Right when you said that, I just lit up inside because I really, we see so eye to eye in this that we don't have ritual. We've lost a lot of the initiation ceremonies that were guided VR elders. And what we're going to experience tomorrow uh, as we head out on the sacred hunt is a rite of passage, especially when it's done with respect and creating the container for this type of work. I'm curious, so with the work that you do today. And today's been such a cool day. Like we <laughs> me 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 and you, I mean we've met before, you know, at at Paul's, Paul's birthday, yeah. Paul Check's birthday. But this has been the first day that we've really uh got to drop in and connect yeah, and man. and spend time and in these last few hours, man, I've learned so <laughs> much and enjoyed our conversations me so too. much. Me too. From podcasting to fatherhood to everything to do with medical system and and being a doc and you are so unique in how you approach medicine and, and, and supporting people. And, uh, and you specialize in two major areas, both the birthing process and then also helping people transition. And in those transitions, like I'm really curious, well, one, why those? And then also just what does it mean to you to be a part of someone's rite of passage? Well, I think it's a real privilege you know, I think a lot of doctors see what they do as a duty and, uh, you know, it's a source of income. It's, you you spend all the time doing the thing you do, you're studying, you're going to school, you're making all these sacrifices. And now you get, you know, you get to make money doing that thing. But how many people are really happy doing that? Not that many doctors. There's a pretty high depression rate, for example, lots of anxiety. And, um, what I started realizing was that the pressure I was putting on myself, and to be very clear, I am an OBGYN and my second specialty, uh, board specialty, is hospice and palliative medicine. So I see a lot of end of life and I see a lot of birth. And then I do a bunch of lifestyle stuff in between in order for uh, you know my clients to have their health and vitality optimized while they're here. And uh, I don't know if I would have been guided necessarily to do the lifestyle stuff if I hadn't had such an appreciation for these rites of passage and how important these experiences are as a father, as a son, as a um, Holy Spirit. No. <laughs> um, so, so when I was in an OBGYN training, that's four years of residency. It's like roughly 100-hour weeks. I remember 
being so tired, Mike, that I'm in a call room and they had these like little mini hotel rooms, basically, uh, very bare minimum twin size bed, um, where you were just down the hall from where all the birthing suites were just out of earshot. And they would call you or page you like old fashioned pagers. Um, only two types of people carry pagers, doctors and drug dealers. <laughs> and, uh, um, I would be so tired so extraordinarily tired that I would have to have the, the, like the pager. I, I used to put it, um, not on my forehead. I've heard Peter Atiyah say he used to put his on his full fo- on his forehead, yeah. but I would put it on like my neck or even like in my crotch because I needed something to vibrate me awake. Cause I was so tired that I would sleep through a beeper, which is hard to imagine, but you were so exhausted. And the reasons that you would have to wake up on a regular basis were to go and intervene in a process that is a, is a sacred rite of passage, which is birth, giving birth. And that means that we are interrupting this woman who's going through this transition. We're, we're getting in the way of this natural physiologic thing. And it, it started annoying me that I had to wake up. So really the start of my appreciation for what natural birth could look like, or natural death for that matter, was that I was being expected to intervene which is taking away from my quality of life and making me want to murder everybody because I'm not sleeping. Like you can't survive on four hours of sleep. I ended up in severe adrenal fatigue in residency. So it's like, why am I even having to do this shit? Are we allowed to curse on your podcast? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I don't want to do these things. They don't seem to appreciate it. And it doesn't seem to be making anybody better. So why am I doing all this stuff? And so I really started to pull back and think, what is absolutely necessary? And I started really observing how do people do when they're not having these, these processes intervened in. And they did just fine. In fact, they sometimes did better. And we'll get into some of the mechanisms there without getting like too much into the weeds, the patho or the, the physiology and biochemistry. But the point being that I was like, why are we doing all these interventions in the first place? It's making everybody miserable. It's making the nurses' jobs harder. It's making this birthing woman's job harder. The dad isn't slept, you know, and and like, they don't want to be in the hospital for three days. Like, can we just get this on the road? Why are they even here is what I started asking. And fast forward, I now have two little girls of my own. We've had one in the hospital and it was undisturbed, but it was still not, uh, it's really hard to have an undisturbed birth in the hospital. There's people there at all times. There's blinking lights, there's, there's um, beeping noises. There's constantly people coming in and introducing themselves because they're doing shift changes. Whereas at home, we had two hours of labor the halfway point, you know, my wife's waters opened up at five o'clock at 6 p.m. We started a breathwork process, which I described to you, which is, I'm going to link up you and Lauren with Sarah, uh, Sarah Termoli. Um, Sarah's been on Paul's podcast. She's breathed Angie and, and Paul. And that type of breathwork really helped my wife ground herself in the process, got all of the distractions out of the way, got the neocortex out of the way. And she was able to effectively, um, I don't, I don't want to put words in her mouth as we've talked about, but she described that she has used the word ecstatic when she's described it, which is as close to an orgasm as I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So there's, an, there's a, 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 this, this sort of, um, they call it the fetal ejection reflex, which works just like an orgasm in men and women. And the milk, this, uh, this milk uh, releasing reflex, milk ejection reflex in the breast when a baby's suckling. But when you get all of that stuff out of the way, bam, a baby emerges almost out of nowhere. And suddenly Everly Rosa was on my wife's chest, still asleep. 
and they were bonding and connecting and becoming codependent and addicted to one another from that first moment without the baby rushing, cut the cord, get the baby over here and do all this other stuff. And I know you and Lauren are preparing for a birth and I'm happy to be a part of your your team, like on team Mike and Lauren. So when I started realizing, oh, wow, when we don't intervene, things actually go better. That makes my life easier. It makes the birth better. It makes the nurses happier. And they go home quicker. Like the baby and the mom have a better life together. Like everything works out better. So we have this new uh, trend, a, a, a renewal of this trend to have babies outside of hospitals because of all those distractions. And I feel like in my position now, I can attend to birth and death in that same way. Why, why do we have to do these things in the hospital? Lauren Hall wrote a book called The Medicalization of Birth and Death. I think it was called The Medicalization of Birth and Death. And she talks exactly like I do, but she's from the, the university space. And I had her on the podcast and I was like, this, people are coming to this conclusion that we're doing these rites of passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that there's a right way to do it, but could we perhaps improve the circumstances around ritual and ceremony as opposed to treating it like a definitive step-by-step linear medical procedure? And so that's, that's really where I spend most of my time thinking. <laughs> I, I love it. And, and one thing that I'm curious about is if, for example, uh, someone was to give birth into a hospital, what suggestions or invitations would you have for someone to create maybe even more of a sacred space for themselves uh, in that environment? Are there any suggestions or anything that comes up for you? I think it's really hard. You know, there's this, uh, I'll start by describing what's called a free birth. Okay. You've, have you heard this term before? Mm-mm, no. <laughs> so a free birth is there is zero attendance. There are, is nobody there helping you out. Maybe not even your presumably male partner. So a woman's pregnant, they start going into labor and they go off and have a baby, whether it's at home, in the forest, in the ocean, whatever. It's (laughs) called a free birth. The interesting part about a free birth is that we can't study a free birth because by studying a free birth, we are now intervening in the birth process. So it's sort of like, I think it's, um, what is it? Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You can't observe the location and the velocity, which is a direction of, uh, you know, a speed in a specific direction of a particle. Because once you observe one, you lose the ability to measure the other. Mm. So it's, it's this observer effect whereby if I'm observing you and you know you're being observed, then the neocortex comes into play and all of those, that milieu of, of cultural influences starts to become impactful in your experience. And this goes for everything in our life. It goes for why, why you're having sex. It goes for why you're performing a, uh, a special technique in martial arts or whatever. When people are watching you, you perhaps have some change in your performance. Now, some people thrive off of that in martial arts, but in these, when we're talking about the role of this big, gigantic brain of ours and, and the, the role of culture in influencing our experience, what we find is that when birth is disturbed, even by somebody like perhaps the male partner being there and talking to them, mm. you now have a disruption in the process of birth. It may not be all that critical, but it's a disruption nonetheless, which is why so many people now are arguing on behalf of free birth. Wow. And the one big criticism is, well, women have always cared for women in birth. That may be true, but the original word obstetrics, which is spelled with an X, translates to midwife. And midwife is quite literally means to stand opposite of. So historically, what we, where we think this, this idea of women caring for women and, and a birth attendant actually came from a woman, let's say, being in, I don't know, a cave. 
and another woman standing outside of the cave. I'm being, I'm being like very, very like simple here. Yeah. It could have been in, you know, medieval times in huts or houses, whatever. But a woman's going to have a free birth and she's going to have another woman who appreciates the role of an undisturbed birth. They're going to wait outside and keep anybody who's straying or wandering nearby, keep them out of the birthing woman's space so she can have an undisturbed experience. So to answer your question, I'm not so sure that we can have an undisturbed birth in the hospital. If a person was compelled to have a birth there, and I don't think there's any right way to give birth. I think we are we can't just wipe away this cultural milieu as I've described it. We can't, mm. you know, there's, and plus there's a lot of shame and guilt and embarrassment around our bodies. There's all these other factors that play in. But if a person was in the hospital, I think most people will, will say, you need to have a birth plan. Okay. Well, a birth plan is a list of things you do or don't want. It's not usually respected. People laugh at them. Not respected by whom? By the, by the healthcare staff. Got you, got you. Okay. So they're sort of like, oh, you come in with this list of things and you hand it to me like you would hand the pilot instructions on how to fly the plane or where, how we're going to fly with the wind speed and all of that. Don't do that. That's what they say. And in some regards, they're right, but that's not the purpose of a birth plan. The purpose of a birth plan is to say, here are what my values and belief systems are. Here's what's important to me, hmm. which anybody going to war is going to prepare a battle plan. But that battle, and I hate to give the war metaphor, so just bear with me because it's actually just, just a useful metaphor, guys. <laughs> you don't go into, into war without a, a plan of battle. Yeah. But when you get there, you may have to change your plan. A birth plan is meant to be changed. It's just, it's just really uh, meant to clarify what's important to this person who's carrying a baby and maybe her partner. And, and what, what can we do to best align their care with those values? So you can do that. But if you're going in with your fists up and you're going to get your birth plan notarized, <laughs> which people are doing now, and <laughs> okay, but let's remember the whole issue here is that if you go in in a state of stress and you're using that neocortex, you're now disturbing the natural physiology of what leads to this fetal ejection reflex. And that's the ideal birth situation is you've got a flood of oxytocin. That flood of oxytocin is enhanced by your catecholamines. And early in labor, those catecholamines, which are like adrenaline or noradrenaline, also known as epinephrine, norepinephrine, they hit the uterus and they actually inhibit the, the, the uh, they sort of suppress the effect of oxytocin. But then you transition to that second stage where now it's time to push and you see the tigress emerge. It's not mm. even the time to push. It's really like as the cervix starts to dilate and the baby's descending, you get this you get this change and you're going to see this in Lauren. I was going to ask, is it, this is either a felt thing or visual thing? I'll be, yeah. They, the animal comes out and, and that's not a, that is not a demeaning. That is like, you will see your partner. This is part of the rite of passage of birth, childbirth as a father. You will see your partner roar with the power that is a birthing woman and you will never be different. And I get chills just thinking about it because um, very, I'll just tell you very briefly. When we were in our, our home birth, uh, our first birth, we didn't have a baby, our first baby at home. When we went to the hospital, my wife was in the tub and it started off at like 11 o'clock. We were watching Peaky Blinders or something, you know, <laughs> some awesome show and getting excited. And, and she was like 41 weeks and uh, we were going to bed and I could hear her breathing kind of picking up. And I was like, oh, she's contracting a little bit. And then she went to pee and she came back and she was like, like not able to get comfortable. And I actually put my hand on her wrist. And I checked her pulse and then she was in like the 110s, 120s. I was like, 
something's happening here. And I did that kind of sneakily, but I also didn't want to be like, tell me about your contractions. How, how far apart are they? Like, bro, relax. I got this. Okay. Like that's just my wife. So I just kind of was trying yes. to get a, 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 literally a pulse check. And, um, and ultimately we ended up going and walking a little bit. And then a couple hours later, she was on all fours with her arms on the couch, like trying to get comfortable. She didn't want sage. I was like saging the whole place. She was like, no more sage. No, no more, more Palo sa Santo. We're done. <laughs> I went, oh, here's some lemonade. I don't want lemonade. Just leave me alone. And she's pacing and she's getting into that zone. So this is where you're distracting a person by offering them this and doing this. And, and they will ask if they need something. Okay. But at this time, it was just like, okay, I'll let her just drive the ship here and we'll just see what she says she needs. And I, I said eventually, hey, do you think maybe you'd like a bath? And I drew her a bath upstairs, helped her get up the stairs. She had a, had a, you know, a couple contractions while we we're going up there. And then she's in the tub and she's chill. She's naked. She's beautiful. She's comfortable now. But then it, shortly after that, she started like, had her hands on the one end of the tub and started like moving her hips back and forth and really getting into the rhythm. And then she started arching her back and puffing her chest out. Hmm. And I was like, something's happened. I, and I'd seen this. I'd been to so many births. And I was like, honey why don't you let me just gently check your cervix? And she laid back on her back. Nobody had ever checked her cervix before. And it was just like a head inside the vagina. I was like, okay, why don't we, this is like ASRM for everybody. Why don't we, um, let's get out on the tub and uh, I'll get your rope. <laughs> I'm going to grab the go bag and I'm going to get in the car. And like, I, then I got, I like, I like got her out and I was like running around like Speedy Gonzalez, you know, and got in the car and we drove to the hospital and she's in there and they're asking her questions about like, what's your favorite color or whatever. And she's like, I'm in labor. So I was like, I'm a doctor here. Can we just go? Like I'm, I'm an OBGYN. I'm telling you a baby's going to come out unless we get to a room. And sure enough, like within a couple, you know, not long after we had a baby, but, um, that transition, <laughs> that, that transition point when they start arching their back, like they're not, they're not thinking. The, the subcortical structures start to take over. And that's important because the neocortex is the part of our brain that is separate from everything else. There is some neocortical structure um, in the animal kingdom, but we have even one part of our prefrontal. So when you have an orgasm, we've done this through fMRI studies and whatnot, your neocortex, that's the, the human part of your brain, it shuts down. Hmm. So it's important that it shuts down because it actually allows some of this other biochemistry to happen. You get this flood of oxytocin. If your neocortex is still operating, you don't get the balance between your catecholamines, your oxytocin, et cetera. So you don't actually achieve the, these higher transcendent states. But let's say that when you're talking to somebody who's in labor, you are activating that neocortex. So a lot of women will actually get into all fours. They want to minimize the visual inputs, the other sensory inputs. They don't want people talking to them hmm. because it activates the neocortex. And if the neocortex is activated, then we're then our fears kind of kick in. That's when the the judgment starts to kick in. Interesting. So they'll get on even like the like a child's pose position, and their 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 naked rear might be up in the air. Their modesty goes out the window. Mm. They're not connecting with what's going on out here. And I saw that in my wife. Like she is transitioning. The tiger is roaring. So this is no longer, honey. How are you feeling? It's shut the fuck up. I am going in now. 
and you get out of the way because birth is happening. This is the fetal ejection reflexes kicking in. Hmm. So this is when the baby starts getting nudged, 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 and then ultimately just is fired out. I mean, I've seen babies just like, they shoot out. Wow. So even the pushing is probably not all that necessary. But if we're yelling at you to push, if we're coaching you, now we're activating your neocortex. And now that fetal ejection reflex is not fully intact. This isn't true for everybody, but this is true enough that it actually is, is helpful for somebody who's going to have a hospital-based birth. So let's, instead of talking about the home birth scenario, which is easy as, as pie, which I can talk about if you'd like, but... Well, one question on yeah. that, in that situation, so like, what's the role of the father or the partner? Genuinely very curious because in a few months yeah. I'll be in this position. Yeah, yeah, totally. So any wisdom uh, for myself and anyone who, who will be in this position, I would love to hear. What, what's, what do you see as that? I think that we as men like to be the ones who have the answer. We like to fix things. We yep. like to come to solutions. And I think that there's some sliver of toxic masculinity in there, right? Where we want to show up and have the, we want to be stronger. We want to be capable. We want to be competent. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that that is toxic masculinity. But what I mean by us showing up and, and feeling like to be masculine is to fix problems, mm. is to miss the point between the divine feminine and the divine masculine. So culture, mother culture has taught you that, hey, Mike, if you're, a, if you're a, an adequate man, you're going to be muscly, check. You're going to be handsome with a nice mustache, check. <laughs> you're going to make money for the family, check, right? Like <laughs> there's like the uh, prerequisite sitcom driven notion that you're not a man unless you hit all these categories and yeah. you have to have a four foot cock and all these other things, right? Mm -hmm. So th that's where we get all these insecurities. I think that there's another part of this, and this is something that a friend of mine, Charles Eisenstein, who's this prolific social philosopher, he, he brought up in a conversation recently. And we were talking about the witch trials. So imagine several hundred years ago, men were forced to stand and watch as their women were being torched, tortured to death, burned at the stake on a giant pile with other women in front of our da my daughters. Mm. So I'd have to imagine my wife being murdered in front of me mm. by people who were out there, you know, the witch hunters through the Malleus Maleficarum, this like thousand page Bible for the witch hunters. Here's how you identify a witch. Here's the things that they're tried for. Here's how a trial goes. Was it witchcraft or was it medicine? And a self-proclaimed physician, male like me, would say that was witchcraft or that was, that was medicine. Wow. So this whole fucked up thing happened for about 400 years. And the whole time we had 10 to 12 generations of men who were watching women be burned and not able to say anything for fear of themselves being killed and leaving their kids alone or watching their daughters as well be burned in front of them. Because mm -hmm. all it took was, they're, they're a witch. I saw them um, saying some incantations behind the, in the back of their house or whatever. It, it could have been anything. It was, the, it was a massacre against women. So I do think that there was some passed down uh, intergenerational trauma where men now show up and we're, we're, you know, sort of in the way, maybe subconsciously, we're never going to let that happen again. Mm. And so we protect. And this happens in birth as well, where we think that our role in birth is to stand up and puff our chest and show how big and strong we are. Now, I will say that after you become a father, it becomes easier to mitigate problems nobody's coming near my kids. Like I, I told you this earlier, yeah. I don't care how big and tough you are, you will have to release this microphone from my Kung Fu grip before I <laughs> smash you in the head with it, you know? 
And I may not get very far, but you're going to have to like literally rip me limb from limb. I'll be like one of those knights who say knee, you know, like on a Monty Python. I'll have like one arm and I'll still be swinging. You it's know? on. Yeah, it's on, it's right? It's on. But you also get better at balancing your nervous system. Like you can't go, you know, ape shit on everybody who, who looks at you wrong. And you also can't be totally submissive. You become this kind of balanced, confident guy. Mm. But before you get there, you still have this program. You've come in. You have the maiden that you've, you've, you know, you've, <laughs> you've had sex at least once, and now she's having a baby. <laughs> and you guys are both going through this this spiritual transformation. But you are bringing that lifetime, that thirty five years of history of of being a strong guy, of being such a charming, handsome, capable breadwinner. And now your job is to not do any of that. Your job is actually to keep it as quiet as possible and for her to know that you are there without her knowing you're there. Wow. When's the last time you were asked to do that? Oh, man. I mean, the only thing that remotely comes up is uh, holding space for someone in a process or holding space for her when like even serving combo to be mm. there without being there, to be there to support and obviously keep everything safe, but to just be there and not do much. And, right. Uh, just be there in, in loving presence. And when asked, then the invitation is there to step in. Right. Wow. Right. So you've had some practice with this. Mm. You know, the, I think the, the other challenge here, and this is probably relevant to your combo experience as well, but the, the other challenge is you, you have this person that you love so much who's going through pain. Mm. Now, um, one way to reframe contractions that you guys can work on is instead of calling them contractions, call them surges. Mm. Because if I punched you really hard in the arm, it's going to be sore. But that pain is not the same uh, as this pain. This is functional. This is something that's actually working to get your baby boy here. So if we can reframe that, it actually will help to, again, alleviate this role of the neocortex. If you, somebody punches you, your brain goes into flight or fight. And that's not going to be helpful because stress fear, uh, really any distress whatsoever is going to impact the natural physiologic birth. So you have to reframe these things. And you don't have to have a mantra where it's like, it's a surge, it's a surge. You just <laughs> need to get, <laughs> you and Lauren both can practice just getting comfortable with the idea of visualizing what's happening here. Every time that that squeezes, the reason it's it hurts is because your baby is coming into the world. Mm. Instead of, of, focusing on ouch, ouch, ouch. And that's a part of like the hypnobirthing process and whatnot. I can't overemphasize how unintellectual this experience is as a father. It's really the opposite of, it's really the first time that you may hold space and just let a person experience what they're experiencing and letting them know that if, you're, if they need you, they know you're there, right there. We were talking about some of the men's groups that you that you lead, and uh, something I didn't share with you was that one one time at Burning Man. <laughs> every good story starts with one time at Burning Man. <laughs> uh, my wife and I went to this this event. My wife was pregnant actually this year at Burning Man, uh, the the year that we went that I'm describing, and it was called um, the Emotathon, and we were in a tent together with thirty other. There were thirty men, thirty women, and the women stayed in the tent and got ready. And the men went outside and got ready. And the goal was we were going to prepare ourselves for women to be sharing 
horrific things that had happened to them, but men are going to hold space for them and not say anything, not say a word. But as men, we're not used to not saying anything. We're not used to saying, well, why didn't you do it this way? Or, or oh, have you considered doing it that way? Right? We, we all do it. And it's a constant exercise. I've been with my wife since we were 16 and I still do it. She's like, well, I didn't need that, but I just actually needed to tell you how bad my day was, but thank you. <laughs> so these 30 men go outside and there was this great moderator. Um, and at Burning Man, men also don't typically look like most men you see. You know, like they're not dressed in typical male clothing. Mm-hmm. Like you're kind of, it's kind of androgynous. You know, there's a lot of vests and a lot of skin and flowery pants and maybe a pink boa. I mean, like you could be <laughs> dressed in any way. And the guy who was leading it had two long pigtails. Like, you know, it was, it's fun. It's, it's fun. But that kind of neutralizes that initial confrontation you have of like the big scary guy wearing combat fatigues versus somebody who has like dad jeans on or whatever, you know? Um, so there, that, that prejudgment doesn't, isn't there, the prejudice. And they led us through a couple exercises that I think you'd find really interesting. So the first was that we were going to stand about six feet apart with a random person we were just just met. And um, we were going to position their body in a way that suggested they were open. Okay. So I'd walk over and I'd position your shoulders back and maybe uh, tuck your chin in a little bit and maybe um, open your palms up or whatever. Just position you. And the, the man receiving was just going to let you move them in whatever way felt most open to the person who needed the openness. So it was, an, it was an exercise in reflection on what does an open person, what is a person willing to receive and bear witness to my pain? What does that look like? So then the next step was that the person who's now in a position to you know, hold space, to be open to receiving whatever it is that needed to be emoted, the, um, the person um, would stand there and be ready. And then you, being the person who positioned me, would come over and scream in my face as hard as you needed to. And the guy I was paired up with was at least a foot taller than me. He was a huge guy. And he positioned me and he, and he screamed at me. And it was, it was like, oh, that was hard. Because normally when a man yells at your face, you normally are like, oh, we're going, you know? And I've never, I don't fight. I'm not a fighter. But I would be triggered by that. Like, get the fuck out of my face. Yeah. Out you of know? my proximity. Yeah, like, the, like a bottle's coming my way or something. This is going to end up badly. That never happens in regular life. So when it does, our, our amygdala, our limbic system jumps in and we go into like fight, flight, or freeze. So then it was his turn and I positioned him and then I went and screamed in his face. And like I said, this guy's got a, a 60, 70 pounds on me. He's a foot taller. Looks like Kyle Kingsbury. And, uh, and the guy started crying from holding space for me to just emote. So what I took from that was not that I'm a big scary guy because I'm not, but what I did take from that was that the exercise of a big strong man holding space and just bearing witness to somebody emoting can break him down into tears. And that's why we don't do it. So here's where ritual comes in. This is where these rites of passage come into play. How can we have how can we appreciate the ceremony of birth if we can't even bear to see the most important person in our life giving birth to maybe the second most important person? We want to fix it. We want to jump in, but there's nothing to fix. So this, this exercise ended with a group haka. Everybody was crying. Hmm. And um, the haka being of the, you know, the uh, Maori blacks or the New, New Zealand blacks, the rugby team, 
We all went back in the tent. And then for the next three hours, Mike, the women took, took, you know, one by one came up and selected somebody from the crowd who they resonated with as somebody who had violated them, raped them, hurt them, left them, um, beat them up, whatever. And they asked if you could come into this circle and they would just lay into you. Mm. Sometimes they said, is it okay if I, if I hit? Some guys were getting slapped, punched, pu- you know, pushed, knocked over. And it was their job to just not react. Just let this person emote to this person who hurt them. Yeah, who, who, whenever, years ago, one person, they were mad because their dad beat them. One person was mad because their husband died from cancer and they left, left her with her kids and she was mad at them but nobody had ever let her have that. So this is the ceremony. You have to let her emote. You have to be there with her. She knows that she can lean on you. You've always been that. 100%. She knows that. You don't need to remind her of that right now. You don't need to get in the doctor's face. You don't need to do anything. Wow. You just need to be there with her. And your presence is going to be enough to honor this fetal ejection reflex, to maximize minimize the role of the neocortex, maximize the role of oxytocin and this balance of noradrenaline and adrenaline in order to um, flood your baby boy with love, which by the way, was responsible for how your baby boy was conceived because oxytocin is responsible for the ejaculatory reflex of both a male and a female orgasm. Hmm. So we are born into love. We make love because as we are we're getting, you know, connected and we're, we're getting into different positions. By the way, this is also a reason why some women want to go on all fours and be in, and have sex, you know, by you penetrating from behind. It's because it takes the neocortex out. Our eyes are closed. It's how we have that full body experience because we're not using our neocortex. So um, at the birth, we're making love when we make the baby, literally through oxytocin. That's the love hormone comes from the pituitary. It's made in the uh, VPN of the hypothalamus. And um, that baby is being flooded with love hormones from the moment that she, you know, really the whole pregnancy, but in a flood, which causes this, this ejection, the, the reflex of the baby out. And then immediately the baby knows to root for the breast, which stimulates more oxytocin. The baby's actually getting morphine-like chemicals from the breast milk which makes the baby addicted to Lauren and Lauren addicted to your baby boy. When I say, and I've said this on a lot of people's podcasts and I've realized I've had to push it further because people don't know what I'm saying. When I say in order to change the world, we need to change how we care for birthing women. Mm. It's because I can't imagine a world in which babies are not born with a flood of this love hormone. Mm. And when we schedule a routine C-section without any labor, when we are inducing before you're ready, when we're doing interventions that interrupt that, uh, that the, this flood of oxytocin, love hormone, because of an engagement of the neocortex through fear, through talking to them, through offering pain medicine over and over and over again, instead of just letting them close their eyes and bear through this process, not pain, but surges, we interrupt the birth of a baby in the setting of a pool of love if we want to think of it like that. So as we have C-section rates rising, as we have an interruption of these natural physiologic processes, we're seeing babies born into generation after generation of children who are not born from love or into love because we're Mm. also using so many reproductive endocrinology 
these infertility treatments and whatnot. That's not a bad thing. I don't want anybody to feel shame about that. But as our fertility rates are declining, we're not even making babies necessarily with this love hormone. We're not, babies are not being born of love. So what would a world look like without love? And I think we're starting to see a little bit of that, unfortunately. One of the things that's becoming more and more apparent to me today, especially through the conversations I'm having with men, uh, and then just simply reflecting on my own life, is that we've got a lot of weight on our shoulders. And this doesn't just apply to men, this applies to all people. We got a lot of stress in our lives. Now that can come via financial stress, nutritional stress, mental emotional stress associated with relationships, you name it. We got a lot of stress today. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it only becomes detrimental if we don't have the tools and the inner resource to manage, to express that stress. Now that second word express is so important to me and is something that I now more than ever value. And one of the things that I've learned is and observed is we don't really have safe places where we can off gas our stress and express it. And let me tell you this, if we don't find a healthy way to express our stress, we will either repress it or depress it. And one of the most valuable tools that I've learned to help myself and help clients and help the men's work that I'm doing is bringing in somatic release breath work. Somatic release breath work. Somatic just means of the body. Release, you know what that means. And then breath work, obviously, it's just utilizing our breath to create space in our body, to off-gas a lot of the pressure that we tend to hold on to. And after a solid breath work session, it is incredible, or at least it's been like that for me. It's incredible how much lighter I feel and how much more clear I feel in my body. And when you are clear, you can get clear. And so whether it is a breathwork session or if you are interested potentially in exploring one-on-one coaching with me, which will certainly involve somatic release breathwork, especially if you're a man looking for support on any of these issues in your life, showing up as better for your friends, for your family, for your community, hit me up. If you just go to mikesalemi.io slash coaching, fill out an application form and my assistant Lindy will get back to you within the coming days. Let's get back to the show now. With that, you were saying about that oxytocin happening at orgasm, at conception, it happens at birth and then happens in the time between. Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about earlier today is, you know, about maybe a month before uh, we got pregnant, Lauren had basically a transition out of her, the work engagement that she was yeah. in. And so right now she's at home and and I have the honestly the honor and the privilege to be that protector and to take care of us. And uh, I know it can be a little challenging on her because she's such sure. a, uh, I mean, she's she's a, a high-paced woman, very smart, you know, a go-getter and all that. So I know that this has been a big transition for her. And one of the things that you were saying is like, you know, with this opportunity and, and many women don't have this opportunity, like it's actually a really good thing right. that she is not working. And how does that connect once again to that, that love hormone and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so... Uh, in order for uh, physiologic labor to happen in the way I've described it, we need less interference with this pulsatile oxytocin release, which ends up surging and peaking right around the time of orgasm, right around the time of birth. And I actually wonder if there's a similar uh, mechanism taking place at end of life, but I won't get into that. But mm. I've, been, I've been thinking through this quite a bit. If we interrupt the dying process, are we interrupting a similar circuitry 
But if we demand of women, and this is like the early, you know, um, 50s through the 70s, some of these early feminist movements, as we would call them, I mean, there's been feminist movements, you know, for millennia. But in the more recent, especially in the United States, the feminist movements that argued against the, the inherently feminine things, and I'm talking about like the things that we associate with women, hmm. uh, childbearing, breastfeeding, um, being a stay-at-home mom, being just a mom, those types of things, that has been devalued for you know, roughly 50, 60, 70 years. Um, but it didn't begin there. You know, it was like women have, as societies rise and fall, as they start to devalue women, the societies naturally collapse because women do something very special, which is they bring our babies into the world. So for somebody like Lauren, and I don't know Lauren well enough, but we we do tend to demand that it's not good enough that you're all, that you're just bringing the babies in. You're not a queen bee. You also yeah. have to work. And that uh, this is a part of that cultural milieu that I described where she has to balance this tendency as you just, I, I think you shared enough, you know, with me for me to know that I'm probably a lot like her. Mm. We're kind of achievers. We want to go out and get it. And, and so are you. But if we demand that she do that and grow a baby and have the perfect balance of hormones as we approach birth, we're, we're asking too much of her. Right. Um, and many people would say, you know, it's sexist to not um, support a woman working all the way up through the birth of her baby and going back to work as quickly as possible. I would argue that it's, it's not just against the biology, it's actually harmful to the ability for you guys to become a family unit. Hmm. And I think what, we see, what we're seeing in families and the rates of depression and everything is that we have to do something differently. Pushing people to work and be more productive alone is not supporting anybody. It's not supporting our society at large. Maybe for the individual, it does make you feel good you know, as, as a woman who's able to do the CEO thing and all these other things. And maybe you do have a totally natural home birth. That's really not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about society at large. Should we, you know, perhaps consider that it's, you know, it's really great that the conference center at this upcoming medical conference has a breastfeeding room. If you feel compelled to be a full-fledged doctor and presenting at a, a research conference and breastfeeding a baby, have we as a society somehow gone wrong? Like, is this too much to be asking of our queen bees? So everything I described, the sort of balance of these different hormonal circuits, these, these, these you know, proportionally um, noradrenaline over adrenaline and that later stage of, of, of birth so that we can eject the baby, this flood of oxytocin that not only stimulates the release of the baby, but also can create almost an ecstatic orgasmic experience at birth, which is, I'm not the first person to use that. Trust me. Yeah. There are many women, including my own wife, who in our second birth, who was, which was at home during breath work, that she said it was healing for her compared to the first. And her first was an unmedicated, undisturbed hospital birth. So there's something really, really powerful about that. But if we, if we take a step back and we just say, listen, is there some reason for which we may need to honor these final couple of weeks and months? Is there some benefit long-term? I think it's without a doubt, yes. Mm. But we also have a lot of cultural pressures and Lauren might actually feel like she's not as valuable if she's not working. And we can't speak for her. She's not here to talk about this, but it sounds to me like she's naturally slowed down. And I even asked you, like, <laughs> I was like, it sounds like she's nesting and she's getting ready. And and I feel like that's where it's at. She's thinking about her baby, your son, all day, every day. She's already communicating with him. Yep. 
um, whether it's conscious or unconscious, doesn't really matter. There is this, this bonding is already happening. And if you consider, to sort of answer your question with another question, like, well, what happens when we do all these things in the hospital? Well, we interrupt that. We actually put a, you know, this halt in that bonding. So you've carried this baby for nine months. And the first moment that baby comes out is spent, let's cut the cord. Let's get the baby dried off and get the baby over here. That baby has been with its mother for nine months. Now you're rushing it over here. For what reason? Hmm. I did some research into this and it turns out that there used to be a fear that the colostrum, which was not fully formed milk, colostrum is the first couple weeks or so of milk, not even a couple weeks, really first couple days. It's, it's highly nutritious. So the baby's first couple suckles from the breasts, both sides, is going to be not milk, but almost like this cloudy white stuff. And it's called colostrum. They used to think that that should be expressed and discarded because it's not milk. Wow. But it's actually, it's like the ultimate protein drink. All natural, best thing in the world. People will sell their colostrum for a lot of money. We know that now. So what I think used to happen was that women, um, either it wasn't fashionable to breastfeed, which we definitely know happened in Victorian ages and whatnot in Europe, but also, you know, we don't want the baby drinking from that milk. So let's let mom rest. Let's take the baby away as quickly as possible so we can feed the baby something else. Let's clip the cord. And that has remained a part of the process, but that doesn't have to happen. Instead, the baby can go right on her chest. And that is some, something I think that you can really be helpful with. You can facilitate that because you, wanna, you want to, like you get all this momentum, the baby's out and they can just continue this bonding. It's, it's an addiction, the baby to the mom and the mom to the baby. And it's good because the baby needs to be calmed. And we also know that in breast milk, there's a benzo, benzodiazepine-like substance, which is like Valium, you know, um, Ativan, those types of medications, Xanax which has a calming effect. And then there's a morphine-like substance and like an endor, you know, endorphins in general that provides a, uh, like an ease, you know? So you get these, this combination, it's like a bottle of that feel-free, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and the baby now is quiet. Like it's important because the baby's way back evolutionarily had to be quiet to not uh, alert predators. So like breastfeeding is is a survival mechanism. It can't be replaced by anything else. And it is the thing that keeps a mother so dedicated to her baby. And it can even be very sexually stimulating. And I don't mean like I'm attracted to my baby. I mean, it is stimulating the same pleasure centers in the brain. There's a milk ejection reflex as well in, this, in the same way that there's a, a sperm ejaculation reflex. And a lot of women feel kind of guilty about that, but that's actually because you're hitting the same reward centers. Your body is going through the same love and bonding experience as when the baby was conceived and then birth and now breastfed. This baby is being is just swimming in love hormone all the way through from conception until you know they stop breastfeeding. And that's a really, really beautiful, magical process. Wow. With that, when you were saying they feel guilty, what do you tend to see with that? Is it guilty with regards to their partner or what 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 comes up? What are the emotions that you've you've heard around that? Uh, you mean about like the weird, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I feel like I like this too much. Yeah. yeah. I, I think they feel just like that. They're like, this feels too like. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this Got way it. too much. Got yeah. It. But, you know, we have also, as a young woman, you've been taught that your breasts are just for pleasure, just for the man's right. pleasure and cover totally. them up and all this. So there's a part of that that plays into it. I won't, you know, I, I can't, I won't speak for anybody in particular because it's such a different experience, but. I do know that when when women are told like 
it's not a big deal if you don't breastfeed and they've been breastfeeding. It feels bad because it's like, it is a deeply connecting experience with their, with their children. Yeah. For my wife, I remember the first, our first kiddo, I think it was eight to 10 months, somewhere in there that she stopped breastfeeding. And our, our second is at 12 months and is just starting to, to wean a little bit. Um, and I remember the first time, I remember Stephanie felt a little, like she had a little harder time starting breastfeeding. And I could tell it was, it was a little frustrating for her. And I think it's because inherently we know that this is such an important bonding experience. Um, and I, I've been using words like addiction and this and that, but it is like addiction is not always a bad thing. Mm. Being addicted to your child, to be, to be present with your child and connecting in that way is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but you can imagine if suddenly at five months, the baby's like, nope, not doing that anymore. It would probably feel pretty bad. Like this is our time together. We get to go skin to skin. I get to hold your Baby skin is so soft. It's like <laughs> velvet. It's the most, it's, they smell amazing. Little babies, smell especially amazing? your own. They smell really? so good. My wife just the other day said, she was like, you know, no it's shit. not like we take liver out of a package and we're like, mm, liver. But like after a birth, that baby's been inside a, a, a uterus and it comes out and it's all slimy and it's got vernix, which is like this pasty, creamy stuff all over it. And I don't know why, but it's like the, greatest smell in the world it's, when it's your own child it's it's intoxicating with that one question that i've got for you is i mean you've delivered many babies and then you've had your first two what was it two years ago mm -hmm. or so yeah oh the first was is two and a half two and a half three the the second now is approaching one so now having had leading into that having had so much experience delivering so many babies and then having your own with your wife um, what surprised you? What was what what was unexpected in in actually being there for your own child? Oh, that's a really good question. I think what I what I was most surprised by was, as I mentioned, we fell in love when we were you know super young. And I told you our whole story where you know we had a, a break when I was in med school. You get that uh, you so so when men and women we uh, men and women get connected and they end up in that like butterfly phase, mm. right? You're getting way more oxytocin. Again, that's the bond, the, the, the chemical that binds us. We, it, it, it's, it drives orgasm, it drives birth, it drives lactation, et cetera. When we meet a man and a woman and you are really like infatuated with them, you get the, you're just walking around with a flood of oxytocin. We all know that feeling. It's like being on a molly all day long. Yeah. And uh, as time, you know, wanes, you get a decrease in that. For women, um, they get a, men get also a decrease in testosterone. Women get an increase in testosterone with time. So it's really quite interesting. And that's because women like kind of want the bond. I mean, that's what it suggests. We don't know. So, you know, after being together for 20 years, you're not necessarily in, you know, having butterflies every day. You know, we still have great sex. We still connect in that way. Like life is still good, but it, it's, it's not like for anybody to say that like the butterflies are going to be there forever in that same way that you first met or when we reconnected, like it's not realistic. So you find other ways to get creative. When you see your wife go through birth and bring your, your child into the world, it is, it is the first time times a thousand. Really? It is wow. so incredible. And I, you know, I described her as like, you see that the, the lioness starts roaring. Mm -hmm. You see a different version of the person that you feel like you know every facet of that diamond and pow, it changes color. And you're like, what? <laughs> so that was the most surprising thing for me. 
uh, I was, I was of course crying like a baby. I'm very okay with crying. Oh yeah. And uh, I was just so impressed that my wife gave birth. Like it sounds so insane because I'd, pr- you know, I tell people I've gone to at least a thousand births. I have no idea how many, but this one was different. It was the best day of my life. And then the second best day of my life was the home birth. Um, and I would have caught that baby, but I was cramped up from the breath work I told you about. But I mean, it's the best day of your life. You get to see this person. Like my wife is not the, not like me. She is not out there trying to get advanced degrees in achieving things. I told you she is so special in that she can actually be so comfortable holding a cup of tea and just like being thoughtful, looking into the woods. Mm-hmm. Like she is going to probably live forever. <laughs> and, um, and to and to to see her then do that is like oh my god what can't you do and i think if we could have a reverence for that again which is why i think men it's so great that we are embracing the opportunity to be a part of birth again um and again but playing it as as bystandery as possible um, without intervening without talking the whole time without trying to puff our chest and advocate yes that's a part of it but if we can just hold space and observe there is so much magic in just being a part of that again. And in, in, in a world where we are free of ceremony, there's a lack of spirituality. There's a lack of anything. It's just where we have kids and then we die someday. This is actually, I think, where it's at. Mm. And just, yeah, so just observing that, being present for that and just watching this person give birth is in and of itself just such a tremendously important thing for a man who's passing through this portal. Um, Going, going from boy to man, really becoming a man, I think. Well, it is, it is really coming back in the sense of like, at least from the, the little that I've, that I know and the, and the more I've been learning, like, I think even, I don't know if my father or just like in that generation, most of the men would be outside of the hospital room, right? maybe just right outside. And then when they heard the baby crying, then they would come in. And now there is something about being in the space. And obviously, I've never been in, in the room of, of when a baby's being born, but just being in a sacred space, there is something felt. Yeah. There is an energy felt in the room. Um, and so I'm so grateful that that is coming back and that is being yeah. more supported because, you know, genuinely or honestly speaking, like one of the biggest questions that I've had for you or that we've been chatting about is like trying to figure out my role in this. Mm-hmm. And like that, it's been so enlightening to hear that, that that wisdom that you've shared of in the process. And um, because I am so excited for this, like I am, I know that I also don't know what the hell I'm in for. And also all I can say is I'm beyond honored, excited. I'm super fucking stoked to get to witness Lauren go through her process and and be with her in that. But I've also, I hear a lot or as I'm reading more, like let's say the first three months after, you know, it, it is a lot about baby and mama, right? He, he's going to need the milk, all that sort of stuff. In the months after, in the initial months after, what now have you seen as the healthy role of, of, of men or as partners or the father? Yeah. So I told you that story about uh, having to, to give a piece of myself and I can retell a version yeah, of that. Please. Um, you know, the first couple of weeks after you have a baby, you're like, I don't know what people are complaining about. This is easy. I mean, the baby literally sleeps 20 hours a day <laughs> and then wakes up and breastfeeds and, and then is like, <laughs> and croaks out. Um, but then after, you know, a couple of weeks, 
the baby starts having longer periods of awake time and there's a lot more crying because everything is scary. Everything's weird. Even their fingers are foreign. So they start, you know, really demanding more attention. And then by six weeks, now we're in totally disrupted circadian rhythm. You're already tired from the end of pregnancy through the birth and everything else. So you've never fully recovered. And that's when it hits you that you're like, oh my God, my life is different. Hmm. And the first, the first thing you do is you resist it and you don't surrender to it. And that makes it harder. Resist it. How can that show up? In one extreme way, it can be running away altogether. It can be just going to work and you know, going to the bar after, you know, I gotta, I gotta stay late or whatever. It's just hiding. I, you know, you're not the type I think that necessarily would do that, but there's that tendency sure, yeah. to just be like, I can't, I can't. Um, especially as men, um, because when we have a little screaming baby, we think the baby needs something from me. You don't have breasts. You can't give them milk. They're not doing formula. So the baby either needs the diaper changed, needs burped, or it's tired and it needs to go to bed. And so this resistance is like, I can't do anything. So what, like, I can't help. What good am I? I've been through this myself. So I'm speaking from personal experience. And um, I think it can turn into frustration. I remember saying things to like to my wife, like, I have my job. You have your job. Can't you do this thing? Wow. Okay. But I'm sleep deprived. I'm not being my best self. It's not certainly not how I want to show up. But it's, it's, you know, I've heard of couples where it's like every time the baby cries in the night, the, the man, I'm talking about a typical heterosexual relationship here. The man's going to go get the baby and bring the baby to me so I can stay in bed. And then I will breastfeed and then the man will take the baby back to the bassinet. We'll lay back in bed. That's of course, if you're not doing co-sleeping, which is a totally separate conversation. That's what we did, co-sleeping. And we didn't do that. So the baby cries, Stephanie gets up and gets the baby, brings the baby back in or just rolls over and breastfeeds her in bed. And then I oftentimes just keep sleeping. Hmm. And people, you know, are like, oh, you should do your part. And it's like, yeah, I, I could, but I never woke up. I couldn't do it. I was just so depleted. And I'm working a couple of jobs and I'm trying to do all that stuff. So it came out as frustration that it was being asked that I do extra. And that's typical. Because like my wife isn't asking for me to actually do anything more. She just really needed me to bear witness and to not try to fix the problem. So you had brought up something, a conversation with you and Lauren, like this needs to be team. Yes. Yeah. And that's where we were lacking. So the communication breaks down first because we have this resistance. We don't want to really take that plunge because it hurts. It hurts to know we can't help the baby. You know, like there's literally nothing you can do. You have to just hold the baby and let the baby scream and scream and scream. And a baby's screams evolutionarily must trigger something in our emotional, like our limbic system, because it is hard to be on a plane with a screaming baby. Yeah. When it's your own baby, it's no easier, but you do start to tune it out a little bit because it's all the time, um, especially heaven forbid, it's a colicky baby, which is when they kind of get, what we think is happening is that there's like a dyskinesis in the intestines, like gas pockets are forming and there's, this, this something happening in there, something's tied up in there. And so the, the, it's like, a, imagine having like really bad gas pains. Probably what are some like causes of that? We don't really know. Okay. Um, it can be kind of diet, it can be dietary related. It can be um, microbiome related. Uh, we have all these ideas. We think it might be a histamine, some sort of histaminic response. Um, it could be that there's like con some constrictures within the intestinal tract. We just don't really know. I'm not sure we'll ever know. 
but our babies didn't have it. And I think part of it was that we had a vaginal birth. We had only breastfeed, you know, breastfeeding. Um, if we can avoid formula feeding, we should, because it's made of like soybean oil and all this other junk. There is a homemade baby formula from the, the from nourishing traditions in the baby book that oh, has yeah. raw dairy in it. And people want to flame, you know, torch me because I recommend raw dairy, but I'd rather do that and risk maybe getting, getting sick. Because the idea is that you haven't pasteurized the milk, it gets you sick, but not all cows need to be pasteurized. Your cows that are standing in their own shit three feet high and getting pumped full of all sorts of drugs and being overly fed and their udders are all infected. Those guys need antibiotics and those need pasteurization. But in this case, uh, with a breastfed baby, with a baby that's, you know, that's cared for and bonded, I don't see a lot of colic, but I'm not a pediatrician. So um, take, that's, take from what you will. To that as a related side note, one thing that's been really interesting for me to observe in Lauren during this process is so Lauren's wickedly smart, like way smarter than me, so intelligent. And uh, and she loves research and she'll go down rabbit holes. And it's been so cool to see how she's approached this because she's actually, that's normally her default. And she's overridden that default to focus on her intuition. So whether it's been intuitive eating or just not working out nearly as much, just just really feeling into the process. And that's been one of the coolest things. And I only bring that up because one of the things that she was craving, even before we found out that she was pregnant, like a week before, was actually good raw milk and like oh, no full fat dairy. But she's like, she was, we're getting it by the fucking gallon. <laughs> she's sucking it down. Wow. And she's like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm really craving this. And so in this whole process, I haven't seen her gravitate towards sweets. It's just been fattier foods, meats, full fat dairy. And it's been so cool to see her. And I shared this with you too, not only to see her intuition really thrive in this process, but I've really experienced, especially as she's been off work, this down regulation of yeah. her nervous system. And it's been, uh, you know, I've told her, I'm like, I'm really I'm just so proud of her. Like, you know, I can't even imagine what's, you know, the 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 feelings that are going to happen in the birth and after, but really she's been taking this process as intuitive as I've ever seen her do something. And it's been so beautiful to witness and be a part of and to celebrate her for it. So it's been so rad, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, it sounds like you guys are really doing so many of the right things. It's, there's not a right or wrong way to do all of it. Um, I think you're asking so many good questions. And I, I do think the one thing that's impossible to prepare for, you know, I, I think you guys are doing your best. <laughs> uh, when that baby comes, there might be a, a period where you you do feel some resistance to leaning into it. And I think as men, that is naturally sort of the, the tendency is um, Lauren's going through doing a lot of, of personal work, inner work it's sometimes hard for us as men to know what does that inner work look like? Um, because you've never had somebody model this for you necessarily, you know, even if you, even if your dad could talk to you about it, would, it, you know, it's a totally different generation, very, very different experience. And you're a different human. You've gone a, taken a different path than from your father. So, um, one, uh, one thing I, I did want to bring up was that when I found myself in that position, I found that that inner work for me, could not be done just holding the baby and letting her scream and for me to just get comfortable with it. I ended up actually having to come to terms and doing some soul searching and realizing I don't want to give a part of myself to this person. 
how selfish. Like where, what is that in me? Where I, you know, I've, I've given some of my life to my partner and I've given some of, you know, over here, but I'm going to, I'm just going to remain intact. And this little baby's going to have to orbit around me. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> in fact, my wife even had said before we got <laughs> pregnant, she was like, you need to say it out loud that things are going to change. And I did, but then I didn't honor that for myself. I didn't, I didn't acknowledge that this, things are really going to change and I have to change. What does that change look like? It's going to be different for everybody. But I had to do a very, very deep mushroom journey in order to, to reach a space where I had all of the information I could have ever wanted. And then finding myself in a void alone without people around. And it looked like walking through a hallway, like you're, you, you have the Akashic records at hand. You've, you've absorbed everything there is to be known, has been known, whatever. Great. You've done it. You are Mr. Brainiac. You have all the information you ever want. That's how you've been spending your time. Instead of working on being present with your daughter, how's that working for you? That was the exercise in this, in this journey. And it was a fairly large dose. So I went a lot deeper than I, than I normally go. But at, at the moment that I had this, this sort of um, epiphany in the journey, there was a shove from behind that I ended up in this space, sort of like in that um, Get Out movie where he's like falling into the darkness. And uh, it was so frightening. It wasn't black. It wasn't outer space. It was nothing. There was the, the void of anything. It was like what, what Paul describes. It was, it was the infinite potential, zero, um, which is, is no thing and everything. But it was also in, that, in my experience of that, it was very lonely. And maybe that was like a glimpse into death. I've, I've been through different doorways in other journeys that this wasn't quite like that, but I came out of that because at that moment I was like, I was somewhere out there. <laughs> and when I woke up, it was like an hour or so later, I, su I suppose. And my dog had like eight eyes and, <laughs> and I opened my eyes and I saw the bassinet for a baby girl who was like six months at the time or first penny. And I just cried for like four hours. Because it was like, what are you doing here with a kid? This is not an accessory. This is a piece of you. And if you can honor her in the way that she needs to be honored, which is to give you your presence, not just time, not just resources. That's all the things that you've been valued for your whole life. Knowing the right answer on the test, the information, whatever. She needs your presence. And so the exercise for me was, how can I be more present with people, especially my daughter? And that night I told you I had like a little dance party. I, you know, I finally like regathered my, myself and then I folded a load of laundry and I was like, never, I had never been so grateful to fold little reusable diapers and little onesies. And it was like, God, what a privilege I get to be here for this little girl and to be her dad. And that is something that no initiation could have ever prepared me for. I had to go through that and go through that pain of, 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 um, of acknowledging and honoring a piece of me going to her indefinitely. And that was the presence of being a father. That's not something that can be taught in a book. It's not something you learn from a webinar or even a men's group. It's something that you have to experience and you have to just have to go through the fire. That is actually the rite of passage. It starts with birth, I think, for men. And maybe before then, it's like the warm-up and then the actual 
you know, the, the final boss, so to speak. It's probably never a final boss, but level two or whatever is whenever you have to actually own up to the responsibility of being a dad. And that's where the presence comes in. And not all men do that. When I think back about my transition from competitive powerlifting to just learning kettlebells at a basic level all the way into competing at a high level, a few of the things that I noticed within my own body was, well, one, I absolutely loved focusing on pure strength development and powerlifting. I love that. I love being able to grip and rip a heavy barbell from the floor and bring it to the standing position. I love feeling strong. And what I did notice about my body when I was making that transition from barbells to primarily kettlebells, man, my body was able to actually maintain a high level of strength. And what was really cool for me was I noticed that my flexibility and more specifically, my mobility was increasing as well. A lot of times when we develop a lot of strength, oftentimes we're even a lot of muscle size. What we tend to notice is that our body can get bulky. It can get rigid or it tends to get tighter. And so what I've noticed specifically with kettlebells is it's one of the few tools that you can develop a high level of strength, look lean and mean, but you can also really be supple as well. You can really develop exquisite levels of mobility and flexibility while you're developing that strength. And that is only one of the main reasons why I appreciate kettlebells, why they've been in my training regimen well over 15 years now. I still use the barbell. I still love that training tool. But man, the versatility, the portability, and all the things that you can accomplish and achieve to improve your athleticism with a kettlebell is really, to me, quite honestly, just unmatched. And so in my program, Kettlebell Lifestyle, if you are someone who really wants to learn the nitty gritty details on how to perform these lifts and even coach these lifts, this is a fantastic program for you. But I'm going to go a step deeper because it not only is going to teach you an incredible level of skill based off of direct real world experience as an athlete and as a coach, but you are going to get the tools on how to be a lifelong healthy lifter. There is personalization in the program from a customized stretch test to what I call training readiness assessments that's going to help fine tune and personalize your day's workouts to a custom kettlebell generator where you're going to choose the right kettlebell weight for you. And I'll give you a hint. You only need one kettlebell. That's right. One to perform this entire program. So if this at all interests you, go on and head over to kettlebelllifestyle.com and any listener of the PATH podcast will get a hundred bucks off. All you got to do is use code PATH20 at checkout. Now let's get back to the show. One thing that comes up is I think as men, like we're very directed. I don't want to speak for all men, but in general, from my experience, freedom is a big thing. Oh yeah. And what, however that shows up in our life. Right. So now after that ceremony and after that experience, how do you relate to freedom and like, what does that mean to you and how does that look to you? Hmm. I suppose the thing that comes to mind is that my wife and I used to be able to travel a lot. We used to do whatever we could do, whatever we wanted anytime we can go to burning man and do, you know, drugs. And, and uh, now you have to be just a little more thoughtful about it, but I don't think that our independence has necessarily changed. And that could be a self-preservation technique where you're like, I can't imagine life without them. Like, 
to hell I can. Yeah, like I remember what life was like without kids. But was my life? Yeah, right. right. Like that guy's full of shit. I'm not <laughs> listening to one of this damn podcast. Um, <laughs> go shoot a deer, you sissy. <laughs> What I always tell people is like, listen, yes, your life is going to change. Yes, freedom is, you're, you, you have more responsibilities now. You, are, you actually have to care for somebody who's not another functioning adult like your partner. So you guys valued freedom. You loved all of that. If you were free to do whatever you wanted for the rest of your life, you'd probably have a great life. But would you get to experience the, the ceremony mm. around having to come to terms what it means to be a father or a mother for that matter? I don't think that there's a better way to grow old. There's a, not a better way than having a little person who is fully dependent on you for everything and for you to have to exercise giving up some of that freedom. In other words, if things are going to change, what a beautiful way for things to change going forward. You could live 40 years and just keep doing the freedom thing. I love it. I think that's an awesome way to live your life. But you will never get to experience the joy of a little girl coming up and saying, Dada, or saying, I love you, Dada, for the first time. And she's doing that because she knows that you love her. And she, she only knows that you love her because you're present with her. There's no better feeling in the world. So you just pick your, you just choose your own adventure. And I think it's a pretty fucking excellent adventure you're about to go on. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. You had said presence as like, that's a big takeaway from our conversation. Yeah. It's like the most important thing. What are some of the things that's changed now in your life as a result of that? Is it working less? Is it what's changed? Uh, or just when you are around uh, your kids? Mm. What, what's How's it like practically showing up? I don't think too many people... Like, acknowledge how awesome it is to play with your own kids. Okay. So I've actually started really, like I used to say, you know, when I was in residency, my wife got comfortable with me working hundred hour weeks. She'd have like sex with me while I'm sleeping in the middle of the night because I'm never around. <laughs> we called it midnight rape. And uh, oh my God. Uh, I know, sorry guys, trigger warning, but <laughs> it was the best. It was like, oh, I get to have sex. And like, I didn't even... She just needed to like get on me, you know, and it was such an awesome thing. And we look back on that and it's like, God, I really was never around. But she's like, hey, you just did what you had to do. And she's like, I know that you wanted to, you wanted to spend more time with me. Like, I know you wanted to like go out to the movies and just have a regular evening, but I was working because I had to, otherwise I didn't finish residency so much. I mean, it was so much, Mike. So she knew that I wanted to be, but I can't say that like, I, you, you get into a pattern of working so hard that it, it, life is just hard work and I live for it. I still kind of live for it. I love getting in and figuring things out and developing courses and programs and podcasting and all of that. But I can honestly say now that when I have, when I go in and I'm like, you know what, fuck it, I'm done working. And I go in and spend like an hour and a half rolling around on the floor with my little girls while Stephanie's finishing dinner. I love it. Like it, it is so much, it does so much for me that there is absolutely no replacement. So you would never know that if you didn't allow yourself to truly not just carve out time, but just to truly surrender to the like 
you know, playing dinosaurs <laughs> for 90 minutes of like absolute, like it doesn't make any sense. This is not, there's not an objective. We're not building the biggest tower. We're literally just building a couple blocks and then knocking it over and building up and knocking it over. When you can start to appreciate that and you start, and you can actually start to see the world through the eyes of a child, life just gets so great. Like, look at this leaf, dad. Like, that's a great leaf, honey. <laughs> into <laughs> really, really, like you start to really change. Like it brings in that curiosity and imagination. And, and then she comes over and like, when I come in through the back door, she'll hear the door open because I work in our in-law suite above the garage. She will come flying down the hallway and run into me so hard, wrap her arms around me and I'll get down low and she'll hit me and sometimes I'll like actually fall over <laughs> and she'll be just screaming, Dada! This is the toddler, the the, the um, little one's still crawling. But um, if people who don't have kids who, who haven't been able to because of so many other constraints in life, it's not able for everybody, but I've designed my life so that I can do that every single day. And like, I don't have, like we could lose our house. I could, we could lose all of our money. And I still have a little girl who runs over to me and doesn't give a shit about those things, just wants to hug Dada. And probably loves like the way my hair smells and will tell me that someday. I mean, like, who knows, you know? In birth, there's a, a mentor of mine, Michel Odant. He's this old 92-year-old Parisian surgeon, still living in France. He sent me like all of his books and he's written so much about birth and about ecology and, and just our role in birth. And a lot of what we've talked about actually is borrowed and kind of paraphrased from what I've learned from him. He says, what we've done wrong in birth is we focus too much on the bad. Instead of asking, why did this person have this bad thing happen? We could ask, why don't we study why some women have such an easy pregnancy and such an easy birth? It's a difference, subtle difference there. I think the same happens in fatherhood. Instead of asking, why are these kids bad? Or why is this guy having such a hard time? How can we avoid that? Why don't we find dads who are actually finding this quite easy? They're not as loud. They're not as vocal. They're just enjoying being dads. Why don't we study that and, and emphasize some of the distinctive features of what makes some, da some dads really happy to be dads? So it's not a matter of how do I get over the obstacles? It's how can I embrace fatherhood? This is so important because something that you and I were chatting about in the Uber ride earlier, it's uh, well, one, these are conversations that I've never heard. And obviously, like I'm first time father. So this is all full on in my new awareness. Oh, yeah. last, you know, so I'll say that for what it is. But that being said, one of the things that you brought up in the car, which was was fascinating, was what we tend to see in movies, in whatever we tend to see out there. It's that being a parent is a burden. Yeah. Being a parent is tough or there's not like we don't get to see this other side. Uh, can you share more on that? Yeah. It's kind of like when somebody asks like, Hey, uh, you know, you, you meet your friend at the bar or whatever. And my wife actually brought this up. She was a bartender when we were in LA and she had like, we used to drink a lot of beer and like really loved that scene. And, um, I'd go in and she'd have some friends there and I knew she was working. So I'd just go and get a free beer and go and join the friends. And, um, she'd come over and join us and have to go back to her tables or whatever. But people would ask like, Nathan, how's everything going? Like, Oh man, work. Am I right? And one point, I remember one day we were walking back to our, to our apartment and she said, you don't always tell me that works all that bad. Like, like tell me about that. You know? 
And my wife is, by the way, like an emotionally very gifted wizard. Like she just <laughs> is sees right into your soul. Um, that's how should we balance one another out? And I was like, I don't really know. She's like, you don't have to say work sucks. Whatever. She's like, you seem pretty excited about work right now. And I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Like I kind of have become conditioned to just like, Ugh, am I right? You know, it's as opposed to maybe like genuinely feeling pretty happy about my job at that moment, which was a rare thing. So she was calling me out on it and I appreciated that. I think the same happens in parenting where we, uh, my wife has said that sometimes she doesn't like talking about how easy her second pregnancy was or both pregnancies were easy, but the second birth especially was magic. Mm. She's like, I kind of feel guilty because I feel like other people, you know, they like are like, yeah, save your good stories for somebody else, <laughs> which is so stupid, right? <laughs> but we all do it, I think, in some in some way. And I think parenting is no exception. I don't know where we got this tendency to to just uh, talk about how hard and terrible it is. Like, Ugh, kids, am I right? Like, I love my girls. I do. Is it hard? Hell yeah, it's hard. Do I sometimes want to just run away? Fuck yeah. Do I? No, not yet. <laughs> um, does it hard on a relationship? Absolutely. Is, is your sex life different? Yeah. And so people might take from that, like, well, then what's so great about it? Because I get to be a dad. And that's not a calling. It's not like a, oh, maybe it is a calling, but it's not like a, it, you know, it's, it's time to have kids. I don't mean that. I mean, I love the idea that this woman who I have loved for so long, and I tell her this recently, I've been saying it a lot. It's like, I can't believe we have two girls together. We met when we were 16 and we've gone through this whole life together of learning one another's trigger points and, and their buttons and all this other stuff and having lots of horrible fights and incredible you know, makeups you know, and buying each other great gifts and going on awesome vacations and having terrible vacations and going through that whole life thing together. And now we have two little kids and we get to watch them grow up together. Like if you're my person, what an awesome thing we get to do together. But you're right. The sitcoms, the movies, most of them kind of play into that like, oh my God, kids, am I right? Like, like you know, the, the husband's going to go and play golf or whatever. And the wife's going to go to away on girls weekend. And like, ugh, kids, just get them out of here. Maybe we'll end up like that. I'm sure that there will be moments that we feel like that. I, I do think that we're going to try to do some daycares and whatnot so my wife can get back to some of her hobbies because she is doing the full-time mom, cook, I mean, really doing everything. And I'm trying to keep the the sort of financial float, uh, boat afloat. But you don't really find a lot of, like nobody's really modeling, loving being a parent mm -hmm. in the media. But most of the people like in our circles, like they actually genuinely like being parents. Totally. There's hard times. There's no doubt about that. Um, and the gentle parenting, the fully gentle parenting approach is actually even harder than when I was growing up where we're like, we were afraid of getting smacked. Um, now that's not to say one's right or the other, but we don't, you know, we are starting to kind of veer somewhere in the middle, not certainly not hitting and stuff, but because like we are realizing, oh, these kids need boundaries and they're not being supported by parents that are not setting clear boundaries. So, you know, it's a work in progress. It'll probably be some really hard periods. And our toddler will go through like two weeks of absolute fucking hell. And we're like, when is this going to end? And then like the next day she wakes up and she's like, good morning. 
We're like, oh my God, she's a different kid. And it's like, okay, we get like, maybe we get a couple of days of like just perfect, perfectness. But these kids are upgrading every moment. They're yeah. learning something new. Like get these little fevers and they wake up the next day and they're speaking a different language. And it's like, what on earth? You are growing and you're absorbing everything. It's no wonder you're lashing out at the world because it is so much. What is my job? It's not to take your barriers away. It's to provide you with very clear boundaries and to keep you from running with scissors. <laughs> and to give you as much language as you can so you can express the complicated um, experience of being human on the mental, emotional, and perhaps even spiritual levels. It's just on me to do my best. And when we can take, we, we can give ourselves a break through the parenting tactics. We, we can, you know, perhaps provide modeling for one another as like, I don't love it every day, but I love it 80% of the time. I really love this. And to be genuine about that and yeah. to not overemphasize that 20% of the time when it sucks. I think we actually can all like realize we all really kind of love this. Let's stop, you know, bitching and moaning about those 20%. Why don't we actually focus on like, gosh, it's been really, really awesome. And I know the harder times are coming. But it would be nice if it would be nice if that was, I think, seen more in the media and we had just a little bit more of that. Uh, it's not as funny, I guess. It's like, a, what was that guy? Uh, what was the actor we brought up earlier? Um, Seth Rogen. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's, it, we don't have to make everything a big joke. <laughs> well, you know, what comes up right now, as, especially as like we're, we're closing this, this show is that's what's so cool. I mean, this podcast is new and it's very exciting for me. But, and, and that being said, that's what we get to do right yeah. now. And that's what I'm just like so in the full body feeling right now, like this conversation and you sharing from your life experience and modeling that for me and everybody who listens, uh, it gives people permission to, you know, and, and I think the conversation that we've had, I haven't heard anything remotely close to this out there. And granted, again, my radar is now being more attuned to this, but at least that's what's 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 commonly put out in society is almost the opposite or in mainstream media or in mainstream medicine, whatever it is. So I am so grateful. And I genuinely <laughs> say that from my heart for you being here and sharing and and just sharing your life experience, man, and doing what you're doing. It's uh um I'm was really excited to be a dad and like now I'm like way like even more excited. You <laughs> Let's know? go. Let's fucking go. <laughs> the same intensity that I used to use as, as a competitive lifter. Let's go. Oh man, Lauren, uh, I'm excited how we're going to grow together um, and, and get to experience a greater level of team and responsibility. That was one thing that yeah. I shared with you earlier. Like I feel um, I was such an individual athlete my whole life and I really resonate with that freedom piece. And now I know my work or my opportunity to love myself more deeply mm. and those around me is to step into the uncomfortable, is to step into that energy of team, which means, and I've shared this on a prior podcast, but I, I, it's, it's a process that I'm in right now. It's, I used to have a lot of trouble saying, I couldn't do this without you. That notion, I couldn't do it without someone, for me, that felt like I was inadequate or I needed it. But in this situation, yeah. I can't make a baby without or she can, you know, we can't make it without each other. And genuinely, it's uh, it's just one of the greatest honors, man. So one again, thank you so much. And I'd love to 
any final words? And also, what are you working on right now? Because I know you're working on so many exciting projects, but mm. what is, uh, what's, uh, what's on your heart, man, and what you got going? Well, I, I really, the only final comments I have are I'm really stoked for you and Lauren. Uh, you guys called me up very early in the process and it was like, there's no doubt in my mind that I just want to be there for you. It's always a different journey. I uh, really look forward to hearing more and to seeing a baby photo at some point in the near future. <laughs> February 13th, which is also my wife's birthday. So you call it the guest we'll date? Or what, the what guest you- day, yeah, because the due date really doesn't, it's not due. It's not like it's a homework assignment. <laughs> yeah. But it, and it's also, I think 20% of women deliver on their, their guest date, their due date, the estimated date of confinement or oh, really? estimated delivery date, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it'll probably be around that date. Our second was on the due date, the 11-6-2021. So she's going to be a one in a lot less than a month. So I quoted guest date just for that reason. Like, you never know. I mean, it could come tomorrow. You may have to fly home. Hoping for, I, you know, let's knock on wood, but because we got some some game to 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 quarter. But um, but yeah, you just never know. So I I always tell people like it's going to be around that date. You'll know when the baby comes. Yeah, Lauren's brought that up in conversations, and she she's shared me like let let's just say early February because yeah. it takes a little pressure off, and it's probably even more accurate than the actual date itself. Right. So that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, that. yeah. Just say some vague date and say like. Oh. <laughs> Mid-February, yeah, something like that. He's an Aquarius, maybe. (laughs) Maybe a Pisces, we don't know. Um, Hopefully not a Cancer, because that's like a toddler coming out. But um, uh, So yeah, thank you for having me. I really, really, uh, I'm so glad that we've gotten to be friends. And I think we're going to have an awesome couple days here going hunting. And I look forward to hearing um, about the baby. And yeah, people can find me at my podcast. I have a podcast. It's uh, conversations just like this. And we're going to have you and Lauren on there. To, maybe we'll have to do it remotely and then we'll do the one in person after the fact or something. We'll combine it into a, into a um, an interview, but it's called the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. It's far less clinical than, uh, than most birth-related podcasts, that's for sure. Because I'm tired of just defending this and that and telling or talking about recommendations. That stuff's out there. I do a little bit of that, but I really want to actually engage more in these conversations. Because one p- final piece of advice I'll give you is that Preparing for the day of the baby's arrival is one thing. It's going to come, it's going to go by like that, though. What you and Lauren need to worry about, not worry about, let me rephrase that. What you and Lauren should, in, uh, should consider investing as much, if not more, time in is what does your relationship look like after the baby's here? Because huh. you have to keep this little baby alive and grow that baby to 18 years before they fly the coop, perhaps. Um, and your relationship has to survive that. And so all the things that we've described are important contributors to how your relationship must change. And this was the best piece of advice I got because the birth of a baby is quite straightforward. You know, like we've already talked about, you don't really need an attendant there. A lot of women are free birthing. Maybe you have a midwife, maybe you have a doula, whatever, but that's going to go by like that. And then it's on you guys to figure this out together. That's where the real work starts. And if you have prepared that, hey, we're going to, our relationship is going to change. If you can prepare for that ahead of time, you're going to be much better off. Dude, brother, thank you so much, so much for your wisdom and your support and your love. Everybody, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you got as much or at any level how much I got out of this. This is (laughs) selfishly just such an awesome experience to be here. So thank you again, brother. It's my pleasure. If anybody wants to reach out, they can just go to my website, 
Realoveitholistics.com. I do work with people in this way. I don't always have the answers, but I'll link you up with somebody that can help you. They can find my podcast. I've got a couple of courses coming out with the Czech Institute. There's a That's lot of right. fun stuff happening. So, so um, really, really stoked to hear what everybody thinks. And you can reach out to me anytime. I'm an open book, as I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you, my brother. Thanks, brother, man. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours.